It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Today we are going to reflect on Sarah Everard, the 33-year-old Londoner, last seen on March 3rd, walking home after dinner with a friend. As you probably know, what are believed to be her remains were found last night, and a serving police officer is in custody on suspicion of kidnap and murder, and a separate allegation of indecent exposure. If some people wonder why we feel so low about a Londoner's death, I'm going to quote from a tweet posted by Kate McCann, Sky's political correspondent. What happened to Sarah Everard has hit home hard for so many women because we make the same calculations she did every day too. We take the longer, better lit route, push the fear aside for the voice that says, don't be daft, you've every right to walk home alone at night and be safe. Even being on the phone has downsides. One eye is always on the person in front or behind. Would they help me? Might there be a threat? Should I cross the road? Would that make it worse? Are there lights on in any of those houses if I need to pretend this is where I live? You're a grown woman, and in no other area of your life do you feel so vulnerable. You resent it even though you understand there is a risk, however small. It is frustrating and tiring and constant, and yet sometimes, despite all those calculations, it still isn't enough. That was Sky's Kate McCann, to which I would add we know very few women disappear off the streets in this way. Yes, of course we do. But why do we feel so fearful? And why is this problem so intractable, so hard for people to understand? As Aoife Barry has pointed out, it is 40 years since the first Reclaim the Streets Take Back the Night marches. 40 years. I, listener, was on some of those marches. So yes, I'm very frustrated. With me to discuss this is Roisin Engel, who I know has a lot to say on these matters. And the Lord knows we've had many conversations, Roisin. What are your thoughts this morning? I'm just very sad and sort of a quiet rage, which I think a lot of women are experiencing this morning and all day yesterday. So I just want to say a little bit about Sarah Everard first. And as you said, she is a Londoner, but I think a lot of women feel a very strong connection. A lot of women are feeling things like there before the grace of God and all that kind of thing for the reasons you've so well outlined there. She was 33. Uh, She was at a friend's house in Clapham in London and she was walking home uh, across Clapham Common. It's a walk she'd done a lot. She was a marketing executive. I've seen her family and friends describe her as strong and beautiful and sensitive and kind. And uh, she never made it home. And so yesterday was the first time I heard her name, Cathy. She uh, she was all it was all over Twitter. The hashtag of her name was trending because at that stage the police were were searching for her. And at the same time, then I was looking at a story on the Irish Times about another woman who'd gone for a walk. She was 69 and uh, she went for a walk at 7.30 in the morning. Sarah Everett went for a walk at nine o'clock at night. This woman went for a walk at 7.30 a.m. in the morning last January. And uh, she was walking along and a young man came up behind her and grabbed her and bundled her into a car boot. 
And yesterday, that man, Martin Gallagher, was sentenced to six years for attempted kidnapping. And I was just watching that story and listening to the woman in question talking about the fact that over a year later, she still has nightmares about that uh, experience and the fact that she still has scars on her shins from where the man repeatedly uh, slammed the boot onto her legs. And in fact, if it wasn't for her legs sticking out of the boot of a car that were seen by a passing motorist, we don't know what would have happened to that woman. Um, so he was sentenced to six years, which he probably won't serve all of. Uh, and the reason I'm I'm mentioning that 69 year old woman as well as Sarah Everard is because because of what you said, this is not about um, it's about every woman, really, who's experienced the fear. And like you say, it doesn't happen. It is a rare thing. But it's not rare that women feel fearful about going for a walk. And I wrote on Twitter myself yesterday about about this collective trauma that women are feeling and how women and girls are in danger. They're in danger just going for a walk. And whether they're going for a walk at 7.30 a.m. in broad daylight or whether they're going for a walk at 9 p.m. on their way back home, whether they're old or young, 69 or 33, whether they're wearing skirts or trousers, whether they're drunk or sober, whether they're wearing loads of makeup or no makeup, they're scared to go for a walk, uh, scared to run, and men are not scared to do these things. And I can't help asking if men were scared like this, would um something be done? Now, the other thing, I went into a bit of a rabbit hole about this yesterday, as I know many women did, reflecting on my own experiences, and we all have them, so I'm not going to kind of repeat some of the ones that you quoted Kate McCann saying there. But I did find a really interesting article from a few years ago, which was from a report by Stanford University, which showed that all around the world, women walk disproportionately fewer steps each day than men. And they had analysed data from over 700,000 people all over the world. And it showed that women walk less than men. And the reason for this, Cathy, as you can probably um, ascertain, is not laziness. It is because women are literally frightened off their feet. And so yesterday when all this outpouring was happening, there was another outpouring from a good few men. The hashtag not all men at one point was was trending over hashtag Sarah Everard, which was very interesting and distressing because there was a number of men pointing uh, and questioning Sarah Everard's decision to walk home alone and, and questioning you know, people talking about men, it's not all men. And yes, of course, it's not all men. But what was being what what the narrative was still out there that this somehow was women's fault, that this somehow, if we really looked at it, was somehow Sarah Everett's fault. And I just want to say really clearly to everyone listening, and I know a lot of people will be feeling and remembering experiences they've had themselves. It's not women's fault. It's not our fault. It's not our fault that we have keys in our hands ready to use. And it's not our fault that we feel unsafe when we're walking along and there's a man behind us and we have to cross the road. And yet, as women, we're told over and over and over that it's up to us to change our behaviour and reduce our own personal risk. And what does that do, Cathy? Well, that shifts the responsibility away from the choices and the actions of men. And, you know, we love men on this podcast, uh, some of our best friends and our sons and our brothers and our lovers and our husbands are men and we love them very much. We're talking about a subset of men. We're talking about the 90 percent uh, of, of sexual violence in the world being done by men. And all those people tweeting hashtag not all men, um, they were talking about how men are attacked too. Yes, but who is atta- mostly attacking the men? It's men. 
So there is a massive, massive problem. And I've just got a couple of more things to say. I really want to, to talk about that massive, massive problem because as Derville MacDonald uh, also tweeted yesterday, I thought it was very good. If it's unsafe for women to walk alone day or night, the problem is not women. And another tweet I'd like to quote is from Dr. Jessica Taylor, who was on this podcast recently talking about male violence against women. And she said, all this shitty advice you give to women and girls to protect themselves from rape, murder and harassment. It doesn't work. It just makes our lives smaller and smaller. It's a symptom of a society that has accepted male violence as normal and instead punishes women. And I'd like to tell you, Cathy, this morning on Radio 4, very disappointingly, there was a criminologist called Professor Marion Fitzgerald. She's probably got some Irish in her somewhere, even though she's based in England. She said that women should not pander to stereotypes and get hysterical she actually used the word hysterical about Sarah Everard um, and in, in that sentence dismissing this collective trauma over women's real experiences over lifetimes. And I have to say very clearly as well, this is not hysteria. Women aged 15 to 44 worldwide are more likely to be killed or maimed because of male violence than because of war, cancer, malaria and traffic accidents combined. And Cathy, I don't know what the answer is, but I think I do know that the answer is not pointing the finger at women and girls and telling them what they should do in order to stop this. There's definitely something about the work we need to do to make male violence abnormal, not normal, to make it unacceptable, not acceptable the way it is at the moment. And some of those things are about redefining masculinity, showing men and boys that being a man is also about being gentle, empathic, kind and all those things that men have been raised not to be in a way. Uh, it's also about empowering women because the m less inequality there is, the less violence there is. Studies have shown that, that the, the more those those gaps are decreased. Now, I feel like I've said enough. I hope people listening can feel that um, that maybe this might be a turning point. Although, like you said at the very beginning, Cathy, 40 years ago, reclaiming the streets protests, people saying women should be allowed out in the streets. And here we are 40 years later. And I don't know if much has changed. What do you think? Well, what I would say is that I, I'm, my column this week was about um, all of the men who are so hurt and aggrieved and rightly so by the abuse in private boys schools 40, 50 years ago. And really that we all need to get together and recognise one another's grief and how it affects us, how it, how it is, it is I, I think it is much harder for women because we, we are obviously the victims in the vast, vast majority of cases. But as part of my work this week, I talked to a, an old friend of mine, actually, who went to one of those schools and he actually knew the perpetrator and he also knew a boy who had been a hero. And I said, I'm not sure about classing that boy as a hero is very good for the rest of the boys because you are turning this into a, he's a strong male, he's not a strong male. And the response was actually quite, he was quite stunned. And then I went on to tell him about all the harassment and incidents that I have in my head from the time I was probably 11. I'd say there were probably about five highlights. And I left him completely stunned. And it struck me, Roisin, that I don't think a lot of, and he's a very good man. He's a very good man. But I think a lot of good men have not been listening. 
it's coming home to roost now in their own lives. They're having to acknowledge terrible things that have happened to themselves and their friends in the past. And that dynamic of male power and violence and how it has not been tackled. They are now having to deal with it. But we cannot do this as women in a ghetto or as men in a ghetto. We really, really need to get together on this. And that, to me, is the outstanding question now. How do we do this? How do we get to understand them and them to understand us? But really, they have to begin by listening to us because we're way ahead of them. I totally agree with you. And I think, how can you not listen for 40, 50 years? I don't understand it. I mean, also, does it come down to if it doesn't personally affect you, then somehow it doesn't go in? I don't understand that either, because we should be all be affected by injustice that's happening to all sorts of people. That is not just us, whether it's people of colour or traveller women or anybody. Let's let's all care about everybody. But I did notice on Twitter as well, some as you say, very good men saying, wow, I, I like going out running at 11 at night because the streets are deserted. And I never once thought while I was running around that this was something a woman wouldn't choose to do. And now when they're seeing all these tweets about Sarah Everard, it, the penny was dropping with these people. And so I don't know, you don't want any woman to, I mean, what's happened to her is just horrific. I can't even think about it. But but, you know, that's what seems to be happening anyway. And you never know whether these things actually make a lasting change. But if it helps the penny to drop, if it helps men to understand what it is that, that women are talking about here, you know, and like I do think it's an important point. I think what that criminologist was trying to say was, you know, don't over egg the hype. Don't don't the fear shouldn't be there as much. It's a very rare thing. But it's not rare that we feel afraid and there's good reasons why we feel afraid. And and there's a vast spectrum of kind of violence from, like you say, those things that happened to us when we were eight, nine, 10, 11, right up to us as women in our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, who 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 know that these things can happen and they they, they are on a spectrum of, of aggressions, you know. So um, I, I just I just my main thing is that let's put our energy into fixing the problem of men's violence. Let's stop trying to put it back on women and girls as to how they behave. Roshni, we need to address one question and you you glanced off it there before we go. I got used to this when I was covering murder cases down the courts uh, where there were almost the huge stories were almost invariably about white, pretty, photogenic women who were victims. And I suppose I'm slightly concerned about that aspect. You did mention people of colour there and all the people who are murdered every day who don't get a fraction of this kind of coverage. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's why I mentioned that 69-year-old woman. Do you know, that's specifically why. You, and I said, it's not, you don't have to be old, you don't have to be young, you don't have to be wearing certain clothes or wearing certain makeup. It's not about that. You just have to be a woman. You just have to be a vulnerable person walking along that a man thinks they can overpower and do what they like with. And I just, you know, I, yes... I mean, as it happens, Sarah Everard is what you described there. You know, she's a pretty white woman who was there. But I, I think it goes beyond that. And I think in this case, people see way beyond that because of this outpouring, because of this collective trauma that's being expressed. And, you know, yeah, that's what I have to say. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter how so-called, in adverted commas, attractive you are. That's not what this is about. No, absolutely. Uh, Roisin, thank you so much. I know this is a subject so close to all our hearts. I am really weary discussing it. And I don't know if this is going to change anything, but I do know 
we need to start talking about this at a different level and at a different footing. I think that's a really good point to end it on. And Cathy, can I just say on a lighter note, it's lovely to talk to you again because we used to have these little back and forths. And it's actually this day last year that we had our last um, in-podcast meeting, I think, and that's going to be the subject of the podcast today. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that conversation. Well, you and me going up the town that was fast emptying out and having the whiskey and toasties and grogans was probably one of our very last normal outings in what we might call now conventional times. So I am determined we're going to do it again, Roisin. Maybe not in the next few weeks, but who's soon, hopefully. Okay, well, I shouldn't say happy, but happy lockdown anniversary anyway to you, Cathy. (laughs) The same to you. Um, And rest in peace, Sarah Everhart. Yes. Well, did you watch it? Did you decide not to watch it? Did you stay up till some mad hour to watch it on Sunday night? Or did you watch it at a reasonable hour on RTE on Monday? I'm talking, of course, about the interview between Meghan Markle, Prince Harry and Oprah Winfrey. Apparently, more people watched it in Ireland than watched the All-Ireland final last December, which must be a bit of a downer at GAAHQ. I'm still mightily entertained by the British media who 24 hours beforehand were shouting that it was nothing and the family had far bigger things to be thinking about. And five minutes later, we're accusing Meghan of dropping a nuclear bomb on them. The Piers Morgan fiasco and his flounce were delicious, mainly because he spent the next 24 hours demanding a right to free speech when that was precisely what he had run away from and was allowed to do that on multiple news channels. I have no doubt that Meghan was tormented to near suicide by the same British media because of her skin colour. I have a problem with a few minor things, but we won't go into them now. But if the notion of calling someone your highness is normal to people, I actually can't get my head around that. How does a person not born in that culture adapt? And was Meghan so ill-prepared that she wasn't aware of this? Anyway, we wanted to mark the royal occasion in some way. And how better to do that than by getting Irish Times television critic and features writer and all round excellent guy, Patrick Frayne, to read us his exceptional review of the interview. This piece has genuinely gone viral. It went around the world getting acclaim from all sorts of prestigious outlets and people. We love it for many reasons, not least because it might be the first and possibly last time the word batshittery has appeared in the Irish Times. So wherever you stand on the Royals, we think you will enjoy award-winning journalist Patrick Frayne's unique take on one of the most watched pieces of television in recent times. Take it away, Patrick. Having a monarchy next door is a little like having a neighbour who's really into clowns and has daubed their house with clown murals, displays clown dolls in each window and has an insatiable desire to hear about and discuss clown-related news stories. More specifically for the Irish, it's like having a neighbour who's really into clowns and also your grandfather was murdered by a clown. Beyond this, it's the stuff of children's stories. Having a queen as head of state is like having a pirate or a mermaid or Ewok as head of state. What's the logic? Bees have queens, but the queen bee lays all of the eggs in the hive. The queen of the Britons has laid just four British eggs and one of those is the sweatless creep Prince Andrew. So it's hardly deserving of praise. The contemporary royals have no real power. They serve entirely to enshrine classism and the British non-constitution. 
They live in high luxury and low autonomy, cosplaying as their ancestors, and are the subject of constant psychosocial projection from people mourning the loss of empire. They're basically a Rorschach test that the tabloids hold up in order to gauge what level of hysterical batshittery their readers are capable of at any moment in time. The most recent internecine struggle is between the royal family and a newly disentangled Prince Harry and his wife, the former actor Meghan Markle. Traditionally, us peasants would be nervously picking a side and retrieving our pikes from the thatch. Luckily, these days, the pitched battles happen in television interviews. In Oprah with Meghan and Harry, Oprah, her second name now obsolete, appears wearing roundy Harry Potter glasses and pastel colours, radiating calm. She distantly air-hugs a pregnant Meghan who is wearing a black dress with white patterns, and they both then sit between two pillars, looking out on a Californian garden. This is clearly Oprah's temple. It's actually, we are told, a friend's house. The cameras drift smoothly around and occasionally above them, with the tact of well-trained servants. We cut sporadically to the couple's own property, where Oprah and the pair wander in hoodies, jeans and anoraks, among rescue dogs and chickens, as if to say, we're just regular rich folk, Oprah, no different from you or Tom Hanks or Jeff Bezos. Arch-royalists will, of course, claim these dogs and chickens are crisis actors. Oprah makes it clear from the start that the questions have not been vetted, though she reveals her cards when they start discussing the royal wedding. Thanks for inviting me, by the way. Oprah describes their wedding as being akin to a fairy tale. Meghan says that it was an out-of-body experience, and in fact, they had a small private ceremony a few days earlier. Meghan admits she was a bit naive about what being a royal would mean. She was unaware that she would have to, for example, curtsy to Queen Elizabeth even behind closed doors. She bats away tabloid accusations based on recent links. Did she bully staff? Well, no. Also, isn't bullying staff part of what being a royal has traditionally been about? Did Meghan make Kate Middleton cry about bridesmaids' dresses? She counters that Kate actually made her cry, though she adds, in case we were reaching for our pikes, If you love me, you don't have to hate her. And if you love her, you don't need to hate me. If she's really worried about that, she could have answered, who cares? I'm pretty sure I made lots of people cry in the run-up to my wedding. She does, however, go on to paint a dismal picture of being silenced and unsupported by the institution, as racist commentators took aim at her. The royals never defended her. They allowed lies to go unchallenged and misled the press themselves when it suited them. She calls them by the old nickname of The Firm, which makes them sound like a gang of London gangsters, which I suppose they are. At her worst, she said, she felt suicidal. She rather movingly points to a photograph at a royal engagement when she was at her lowest, noting how tightly a worried Harry is holding her hand. The reason this isn't a mere royal non-story is because it's ultimately about race and gender and touches on a number of very real contemporary anxieties around fairness, equality and institutional bigotry. If I were to pick a pike from the thatch, I'd be lining up for Meghan here. There was talk within the institution of downgrading the royal status of the couple's son. Most shockingly, if you can be shocked by that shower, Meghan reveals that an unnamed member of the royal family fretted about what colour their children's skin might be. Harry turns up for the second half of the interview. He credits his wife with educating him about unconscious racial bias, institutional bigotry and how deeply weird the royal environs actually are. He likens it to a trap, 
one in which his father and brother are still cut. His relationship with both, as he depicts them here, are strained, though Meghan and Harry claim to still have a good relationship with the Queen. Harry also evokes the experiences of his own mother and says he's wary of history repeating itself. And this reminds me that the only time I've ever been moved by anything to do with the British royals was seeing him as a small boy walking in his mother's funeral procession. He talks about the unspoken deal the royals have struck with the tabloids to give them access in return for favourable coverage. As it is for soap operas and reality television, benign tabloid coverage is an existential issue for the royals. He suggests, ultimately, that he and Meghan were in the crossfire of that. He also reveals that they didn't so much abandon their royal duties as be edged out by lack of support. They were told they wouldn't be afforded state security, which is what led to their need to do media deals. Did you blindside the Queen? asks Oprah, conjuring up an image of Harry sucker-punching her with a karate chop. As if that could be possible. I picture the wily nonagenarian counter-punching with the royal dagger between her teeth. They did not, for the record, blindside the Queen. Over the course of the interview, Harry and Meghan, who are charming, clever and good at being celebrities, make the monarchy look like an archaic and endemically racist institution that has no place in the modern world. Well, duh. And despite all the outrage you might read in the UK tabloids right now, they also did something else that renders everything else irrelevant. They officially launched themselves in the United States. Harry revealed their next child's gender. It's a girl in this interview. But Harry and Meghan are also pregnant with a nascent media empire and lucrative Spotify and Netflix contracts. Of course, their critics accuse them of being money-hungry careerists for this. But that's hilarious coming from sycophants to hereditary tax-suckling grifters. Arranging a Netflix deal that the couple actually have to work for is pretty benign royal behaviour when you compare it with conquest and general parasitism. Harry and Meghan are ultimately going to win. Despite the tabloid frenzy, this was never the story of an ungrateful pauper being elevated by the monarchy. This was about the potential union of two great houses, the Windsors and Californian celebrity. Only one of these things has a future, and it's the one with the Netflix deal. That was Patrick Frayne reading his remarkable piece, which will live forever. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Now, a little bit of good news for you today. We found out yesterday that this podcast is one of the finalists in the Global Media Awards, which is a singular honour that we are all very proud of. It's nice to have a bit of good news, especially when it's such a grim anniversary today. It has now been one year, almost exactly, since we first entered a coronavirus-induced lockdown. And here we are, still recording this podcast remotely, me from the kitchen table, working from home like millions of other people around the world. And on that last day, as Roisin and I have discussed, I vividly remember walking up through that city that was fast emptying out and our toasted sandwich and whiskies outside Grogan's and thinking, sure, it'll all be over by the summer. Some children are back at school. Vaccines are being rolled out, albeit at a slower pace than we'd like. And some kind of daylight does appear to be on the horizon, even if that horizon seems at times to be getting further away. Something that stands out 12 months after Ireland became fully embroiled in the greatest global health crisis in recent history is the lack of women in decision-making positions when it comes to COVID-19. They're barely believable. Figures from the European Commission show that 85% of COVID-19 task forces around the world are made up mainly of men. 85% of COVID-19 task forces around the world are made up mainly of men. 
let that sink in. Another fact comes courtesy of the Harvard Business Review, which states that countries with women in leadership have suffered six times fewer confirmed deaths from coronavirus than countries with governments led by men. And I think a lot of us have been brewing over this for a few months and wondering if we're just extrapolating from something, you know, from a few instances which show us in the most fantastic light. But we we are wondering here in the Women's Podcast, would things have gone differently if more women had been in charge? Here to tease this out with me are Aoife McLeisett, Professor of Genetics at TCD. We also have Holly Cairns, Social Democrat TD for Cork Southwest, and Dr. Gabrielle Colleran, Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Aoife, I'm going to start with you and repeat that point, which still has me flummoxed. 85% of COVID-19 task forces around the world are made up of men. How has that happened that women have been so definitively left out of the decision making? I think it's force of habit, isn't it? It's something that's been going on for so long. And, um, you know, we see it. Women haven't been included in decision making and in politics equally. And you'd almost be forgiven for thinking women are, are a minority. You know, the, the kind of representation people talk about, oh, you know, women and other minorities. You hear this, this phrase sometimes. It's like, actually, in some cases, we're even a slight majority of the population. And what it tells me anyway, is that um, by not properly considering roughly half of the population, they haven't always been including the best people because the best people should be equally among the men and the women. And by not equally including men and women, we haven't always got the best people on those panels. And I think that's the that's the problem. And that's a big problem because it's such an important issue. It's been such a consequential set of decisions that have been made. And um, it's important to have the best people there. And it's important to have a diversity of voices, because if you have um, if too many people who are similar to each other, then you may as well only have one person because they're all going to be saying the same thing anyway. You need a few different voices to get a few different perspectives and to make sure that we're considering everything that needs to be considered. This is such an enormous problem. It's, you know, it's throughout the world and it's affecting just about every aspect of our lives. And um, so there, you need to think about it from so many different angles. So how did this happen? I think force of habit an unpleasant habit that's been around for centuries. Deeply unpleasant. Dr. Gabrielle Colleran, what I want to get at here is what is it that women would have to bring to the table, apart from the fact that we're over half the world population, which is pretty obvious. But do we have particular competencies? Well, there's quite a bit of research done on, you know, the difference in leadership styles between men and women if we look at behavioural and, you know, leadership research. And what we tend to see is that countries that are led by women, they tend to put more focus on preventative measures. And they also tend to prioritize long-term social well-being over short-term economic considerations. So in the setting of a pandemic, preventative measures are key. And if, you know, if we look at the fact that countries led by women have six times less deaths, you know, the impact of focusing on prevention, bolstering prevention, that really matters. And, you know, for me, that's quite profound, focusing on long-term social well-being over short-term economic considerations. You know, we actually have made quite a few good decisions during this pandemic. Like if, if I'm being really honest, 
we're in a better position now than I thought we would be at the start of this. But where we've made mistakes and, you know, Leo Vracker, the then Taoiseach, opening up too soon in June was a mistake. Michal Martin opening up at Christmas in December was a mistake. Both of those decisions, if we analyse them, they were prioritising short-term economic considerations over long-term social well-being. So I do think if we had more women at the table making decisions and, you know, people talk about female advisors, they talk about the fact that NEFIT is quite good gender representation, which is true. But advisors advise, it's the people at the cabinet table making the decisions. They're the ones that actually count. And we're behind China and Afghanistan in terms of representation of women in politics. And like Aoife said, we're the majority of the population, but we are a minority in how we are represented in politics and in the media. And if I can just give a shout out to Derville MacDonald and the Equality Expert Group in Media, they are doing huge work in this and really pushing the government to hold media to account by overseeing a triple lock system of tracking, measuring and reporting equality because, you know, politicians and, and because I've now sort of moved into the space of health advocacy around healthcare, I've noticed how often politicians socialise ideas and things they want to advance in media. So if they're socialising that and the female voices are only 25% of the voices they're socialising it with, at a very early stage, the legislation is being shaped by men for men. And I have to say that, you know, as a highly educated middle-class woman, having me on a panel with a load of men doesn't make it representative of all women. Travellers have to be there representing themselves. Black women have to be there representing themselves. Disabled women have to be there representing themselves. Because when we leave out people with lived experience, the decisions that we make will have gaps in them because of that lack of the specialist knowledge that only comes from lived experience. And so if we're to learn anything from COVID, it has to be that our decision makers must be representative of our, of our entire population if we're to make the best decisions for the entire population. Because where we haven't had women at the table, decisions that disproportionately affect women and children have been affected by that. And we saw that with the school closures being handled so badly in terms of childcare for essential workers. We were just left to improvise. It had a huge impact on the services we were able to provide. That would not have happened if we had somebody with lived experience, a woman at the decision-making table. That is amazing, among a few other things. But just to keep it kind of global for the moment, because I really want to get to this thing of this perception that women do it better, because evidence is so important. We need to be able to point out to those guys, look, there are studies to show that having women at the table really does make a difference. They are better for, from every conceivable angle. We, we now have evidence of it. Uh, therefore, you cannot refuse to move with this any longer. But Holly, in your case, what have you observed about how female leaders have succeeded in this case? What have they brought to the table in your view? Well, yeah, I suppose the, the glowing example is Jacinda Ardern, isn't it? I think everybody's noticed her outstanding leadership. And I remember like kind of listening to, or I was reading an article in The Guardian about her recently, and they were talking about, I think it was the World Health Organization had kind of been looking at how the different countries had handled the pandemic. And one of the things that made New Zealand so successful was that they had such good leadership and she really brought everybody in the country along with her. And they had done this interview with Jacinda Ardern and she wasn't like out trying to be a, a strong leader. She said, 
I got my health advisors in. I got my economic advisor, like all of the, you know, all of these people she's working with. And she looked at the facts. <laughs> she looked at the science and she made, you know, very informed decision based on all of those things and explained that to her country. And of course, they worked with her. Um, and, you know, I, I think Gabrielle alluded to the different approaches that men and women take. And, you know, of course, we need that female approach involved in every single decision that's being made. It's so important. And I remember reading about a study before, I think it was done by Leeds University, that examined um, financial boards. And of the financial boards that had even one woman on the board, they became significantly less likely to go bankrupt. Now, imagine that we don't have that, you know, significant representation for the running of the country, which I think, you know, we can all agree it would be great if we were going bankrupt a little bit less. So like it just it goes, I think, across the board. And like that, you, you read out the figures at the beginning, Kathy. we can see that the difference that it would make. And I noticed, you know, even from the very beginning of the, the pandemic and um, one of my colleagues who's always been, you know, very engaged in health in the Department of Health and from the get-go she was talking about travel and every time she had a speaking slot in the door she was going travel we need to look at the travel we need to look at this you know new variants always talking about it nobody was listening to her and lo and behold the new variant now the B117 is responsible for 90% of our cases at the moment and you know so high time we had that representation but I think we can't underestimate as well just I think that the pandemic has shone a light on so many issues that already existed. But say, I've only been a TD during the pandemic. And Cathy, it was this day last year, I was actually in the Irish Times with you um, doing the women's podcast when the announcement came in about the closure of the schools. What a day and an eerie feeling I remember in the building that time. So it's kind of mad to be back here again on the same day, uh, still in the lockdown, essentially. Um, But, you know, one year as a TD and... The things that I've uh, been dealing with for the most part have been um, issues in relation to representing women. So like, for example, we knew at the beginning of this pandemic that most of our frontline healthcare workers are women, that the burden of care falls disproportionately on women who will be working from home. Yeah. Can, can I just interrupt there, Holly, to put a figure on that? Because it's another figure that actually startles me every time I see it in view of what's happened around it in COVID. Seventy. Uh, 70- Six percent of healthcare and social care workers are women. So the front line is primarily female. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's important. So continue. <laughs> and then, so, for example, you know, when we were at the beginning of this pandemic and we had this budget like no other budget we've seen before it was kind of like an almost an unlimited tap and, you know, putting it in everywhere, you know, cash where it needed to go. Not one single mention of childcare in that budget And that was a very sobering moment for me to realise that, wow, even in the face of this, when we know about the unfair burden of care, we know that our schools are going to be closing, when we know that the vast majority of our healthcare workers are women, childcare is not mentioned. And that just goes to show like, of course, if there were more women at those decision making tables, it would have been mentioned. Like, for example, uh, one of my colleagues who has four children, she was the first person to pick up on that. She said, I can't believe childcare isn't mentioned in this. And of course, because she's the lived experience of having the responsibility of looking after her four children, you know. And then, you know, we saw things like the increase in domestic violence and to realise things like, you know, for example, um, we have the Istanbul Convention as a guideline. That is the bare minimum, which is one refuge space per 10,000 people in the country. Ireland uniquely provides one refuge space per 10,000 women, meaning we provide 50% less refuge spaces than what is the absolute bare minimum. 
Then we saw throughout the pandemic, women going through, you know, uh, childbirth alone, apart from so-called active labour part of their birth. And obviously everybody wants, you know, public health to be a priority. But we're talking about a time when the, the pubs had reopened, when there was weddings going on, and still women were giving birth on their own. And I just, the realisation about how important this representation is, it filters down into every single part of our lives. And I've really felt that, you know, since becoming a TD that I've been consistently and, you know, honoured to do it, but working on women's issues almost solely throughout this pandemic because women are so underrepresented. And Holly, just what you said there as well has reminded me of, you know, the list of essential items in terms of um, retail and the children's clothes wasn't on that list. And anyone who has a small child knows how quickly they grow. You know, you don't have to have a small child to know that. It's kind of obvious, you know. How many new pairs of shoes and trousers do they need in a year? Aoife, can I interrupt there to say, I remember this vividly. I also remember the irritable response to it. Can't you order online? Yeah, yeah. You know, why do, why do you need all these clothes? Most people, there was, there was such a lack of understanding in the response to that. And it was kind of a shaming, you know, when pennies finally did open and there were people queuing to get in. There was a mockery and a shaming of the people who were queuing to get into pennies as if, you know, they were doing it as some kind of, um, you know, festival day out and not an extremely practical and necessary thing and that they needed to get in. You know, kids, they grow, um, they, you know, they get holes in their in the knees of their trousers, the, all of these things, you know, because, well, they should, you know, they're going to be climbing trees and playing and all the things that children should be doing. And so, you know, these things, you know, that what was counted as essential um, is not children's clothes, but somehow it is your takeaway coffee, which, uh, you know, we all know you can make a coffee at home, you know, get your instant coffee or you have your fancy coffee machine. The, uh, the going for the coffee is more of a, a pleasure trip, uh, going for the children's clothes. It is. I brought my very own milk foamer since the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. So I've learned to live. I've learned to sort of make up for that. And Kathy, just on that, it was again another example of how COVID shone a light on the social inequality because my child needed shoes. I was able to afford to, to order them online. Um, but you know, there are people that don't have bank accounts. There are people that can't order online. There are people for whom they really need the low cost retail to be open. So the online options aren't there for them. And again, you know, those voices marginalized, not heard. So if if we could in any ways deny that we knew that there was systemic discrimination and social inequality in Ireland before COVID, none of us have plausible deniability now coming out of it because in every aspect poorer people have had a harder time of this. We're all in the same storm. We're not at all in the same boat. There's a reason the cases of COVID are so much higher in poorer areas. The quality of accommodation, too many people living close together, a dependence on public transport, working in, you know, low paid professions where many of them couldn't afford to take sick leave, you know, working in meat plants. So we really now have to address these things. We have a moral obligation now. We can't pretend we don't know. Even from a self-interested point of view, though, Gabrielle, because, um, you know, it's the fact that there are so many people who are required to attend their workplaces and, you know, like you say, in precarious work and then perhaps cramped accommodation, that's sustaining the pandemic. And so that affects everybody. So we have to realise that all of these problems are joined up and connected. They're joined up and connected. And are we saying, though, getting back to the original point, that women in leadership would have recognized this because these were existing problems. They're entrenched. What would, say if Mary Lou MacDonald had been become leader, which she could very well have. Um, this, is, this isn't merely hypothetical. Say if she had, 
Um, would she have made a big difference to the thinking of the leadership? It's hard to say, I think, for a specific woman, because it's not the case that any woman will do either. So this is neither for nor against Mary Lou. I don't, you know, it's just, you know, um, Margaret Thatcher isn't my favorite person, for example, you know, so just because she's a woman doesn't didn't make her uh, my my favorite leader, for example. So it's not to do. I think it's more to do with the mentality that decides to exclude women or ignores women is not really open to listening in general. So I think when you're not listening to female voices, it means you're not really listening properly to anything you don't want to hear from before you start it. So I think it's a characteristic of a mentality that's not really open and not listening and therefore not absorbing the evidence. So what Mary Lou would have done differently, it's not clear, you know, so um, because there's various points along the way where her public statements have been, um, you know, uh, one way or another in terms of, you know, in favor of, I think she was in favor of opening in December, for example. Um, So, um, you know, but now she, she says things that are more towards, aggressive suppression really getting the numbers down so um it's hard to be sure what a specific individual would have done but i think the the general um characteristic of certain voices being excluded be they female voices voices of people of color people with different uh experiences and um you know we mentioned already people with disabilities and traveler community so um you know if you're not including other voices you're really not listening and i think that's impacting on the decision-making process. And Kathy, to come in on that, you know, like in terms of us, you know, not talking about specific women, but female leaders, like the, as I was saying earlier, the, the research shows us they focus more on preventative measures. And, you know, we're 12 months into this pandemic and we still have an issue where our public health specialists don't have a consultant contract. We're an anomaly in that. In every other country in the world, public health specialists are consultants. That might sound like, you know, why does that make a difference, you know, to us or to the population? But I'll contrast us with Scotland. They have twice the number of beds. They have 30 percent more consultants generally, but they have three times as many public health consultants. And so that meant they have, you know, the public health infrastructure around tracking and tracing, doing really detailed analysis of where clusters are coming from so they can put in the preventative measures to shut them down. The 60 public health specialists that we have they are phenomenal people, but they are run ragged firefighting. We're not because we're not employing them as consultants, we're not giving them the teams that consultants get. They don't have the resources to go at this proactively in the preventive way. They're constantly on the back foot, you know, reacting. And that in many ways summarizes the difference between the male and female leadership approach. And, you know, if I want to be really blunt about it, 17 years ago when they got that temporary, you know, contract that wasn't a consultant contract and wasn't really something else. The only difference between them and the broader consultant body was that 80 percent of them are women. I can see no other difference. 80 percent of them are women. 80 percent of them are women. Gabrielle, can I make a little point here? It's been a little bit of a hobby horse of mine the last while. And public health doctors have been demanding recognition and quite rightly so. I suspect not many people know exactly what public health doctors do. And I think that's been a missing link here. You know, we know what a neurologist does. You know, we we had such admiration for that woman that's just been appointed in Beaumont. And we know exactly what she does. Unfortunately, some of us know too well what she does. Uh, we realize how 
how important they are. They are, as we know, still like gods to us when we walk into a hospital or into a consulting room. Public health doctors, where do we see them? And, and do you know why that difference is, Cathy? So because I'm employed as a consultant, I have a clause in my contract that says I have a moral obligation to speak up on patient advocacy issues. So that means I can't be silenced by my employer. As a lot, I mean, obviously, if I was going out and deliberately trying to undermine you know, the organisation or damage public health, that would be different. But as long as I'm going out in good faith advocating for patients, it's in my contract to do that. It is not in the public health specialist contract. So they don't have the same opportunity that myself and other consultants have to stand up and say, no, this has to be addressed. And and we have unfortunately seen public health specialists put under pressure not to speak openly on issues. And so that is just one example of how if public health specialists here, like they are in the North and like they are in every other country, were consultants, we would have more visibility of them. And they, you know, they are the people who are trained to lead us through the pandemics. And, And as Holly was saying, the first thing Jacinda Ardern did was She got those public health consultants in and she said, tell me the best way to lead this so we have the minimum amount of New Zealanders dying. And then maybe she's just so brilliant at politics, she doesn't look like she's playing politics. But to me, it just looks like she goes, you know, this is hard. It's what we need to do. This is why we're doing it. And we're going to do it. So she just makes large decisions. Gabrielle, do you know what's fascinating about that? Because I'm dying to give you this bit of information, which was given to me in turn by Jenny Ryan, one of our producers. Um, And I'm going to put this to you, Holly, because you've been in this past year, it's been, I don't know if it's been transformative for you, but that day in studio when we locked down, there were three newly elected women TDs and you were one of them. And we almost didn't know what to do with ourselves because you couldn't go into Leinster House and there was all that stuff going on. But Holly, the results of a survey by the Harvard Business Review, no less, found that women were rated more positively on 13 of the 19 competencies in an assessment of overall leadership effectiveness. These included, respondents put greater importance, for example, and this is confirming everything that Aoife and Gabrielle have said. Respondents put greater importance on interpersonal skills such as inspires and motivates, communicates powerfully, collaboration, teamwork, relationship building. I mean, this is what Jacinda Ardern was doing, basically, Holly, wasn't it? I mean, it's all of those things, not going to war and not talking about the military operation, going in there and saying, this is bad and we need to understand it. And here I'm gathering around these people who know what they're doing. Holly, is that when you look at leaders around the world, is Jacinda Ardern really so unusual? No, I'd say we have Jacinda Ardern's all over the place who aren't in those leadership roles. I think that's the reality of it. Well, we're just talking for the moment. Let's look at leadership, because what's interesting, another interesting figure is that I think is it's yes, seven out of 10 of the top countries with the lowest mortality rates from COVID are led by women. So let's just talk about leadership for a minute, because it clearly is important if it produces figures like that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what we often see with movements that have been led by female leaders, they've been more collaborative and more um, inclusive. Like I remember just for just as an example, I think one of the most important movements we've seen in Ireland led by women was the referendum to repeal the eighth. And that was very co-led. Um, by different women. And, you know, I remember just seeing consistent criticism of how that whole campaign was organised, but the leadership was phenomenal. You got people all over the country, organised, motivated, um, you know, equipped to go out and do this and an incredible, incredible result. 
And we so rarely see that co-leadership as well. It seems to be something that's actually far more common when you see a female-dominated um, organisation or group that you see this more kind of co-leading aspect, which I think is is really valuable and something we rarely see because we've always seen men in positions of leadership historically and still, unfortunately, today. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, we know that, you know, when we're looking for... Um, better gender equality and stuff, we're looking for women to be treated equally. We're by no means the same as men. And that's why women can bring so much to leadership roles, because we are different. Um, you know, being treated equally is not the same thing as being treated the same. That's why it's so important that we have women there, because I think women do often bring um, different and very valuable traits to these roles that we, I mean, especially in these kind of situations, desperately need. You talk about that in, in world wars. Do you know, would we have had as many world wars? I wonder if there was women in those leadership roles. It's difficult to imagine that we would have. We'll never know that. But going forward, um, I'd like to see finally what it's like to see, you know, how things go when there's more women in leadership roles. And that's the perfect example. 25 deaths in New Zealand. Um, my sister lives there. She is, you know, living a normal life. Okay, stop making us jealous now. Um, and also, I would add all the usual caveats about that, that they're an island and they're thousands of miles away from the nearest landmass and all that sort of thing, which I think is only fair. We wouldn't know what an island is, obviously, here. <laughs> People always say that the, the, dist the, the water is what matters, not the amount of water. The fact of being an island just makes, uh, you know, your entry and exit points more obvious. But I think one thing about the female leaders it reminds me of something I see in academia, which is there's kind of a higher bar set for women. So the ones who do manage to be the leader of their country are going to be exceptional because you never get a mediocre woman rising up through the ranks. You sometimes get a mediocre man ri rising up through the ranks. In a funny way, it's a kind of paradoxical that women who make it to the top EFA tend to be better because they've had to work harder. So it's a, it's a kind of a virtuous circle or a vicious circle, however you like to look at it, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's the, the very fact of succeeding in a somewhat hostile environment means you have to, you've had to prove yourself kind of over and over again and to a higher standard. I mean, I think you can all think of examples of politicians who are somewhat bumbling and but if you think of those bumbling politicians, uh, I can't think of any better female. I can only think of highly competent female politicians, even ones whose maybe policies I don't agree with. Like so I don't agree with Margaret Thatcher's policies, but she was a highly competent individual and, you know, a hardworking individual. Uh, I can't say I feel the same about the current uh, incumbent in that position. <laughs> But Kathy, you know, if we look at, at Christmas and December was such a pivotal point for us before the third wave um, and myself and many of my colleagues in healthcare were really worried because the numbers weren't where they should be. And we were rolling towards this reopening and we had this fear because we knew what was going to happen. And at the same time, Angela Merkel was under those same pressures in Germany to reopen. And for me, it was so powerful. You know, she just went in front of the nation and she said, I know you really want it. We all want it. We want our families over for Christmas. We want to have this celebration. Too many extra Germans will die if we do this. So we can't have this. I know you want it. I want it too. We can't have this. The cost is too high. And so she made the hard call and she it was the right thing to do. And, you know, she brought people with her. And I think we see that time and time with again with women. It's that collaborative approach that Holly referred to of 
sharing the vision, shaping the plan together and being willing to say, yes, this is hard. We, we still have to do it. There's, there's no easy option and this, this is hard. And just holding that. And I think we haven't seen enough of that, of people actually being willing to go, yes, this is hard. That communication has been key, right? Because I think Jacinda Ardern is similar in that she doesn't just say, listen, you've got to stay at home and I'm not explaining why. You know, they, everybody in New Zealand knew what they were doing it for. And that's their big motivating factor. And even when they've had to go into temporary lockdowns like they did recently in Auckland, they had to go into a short term lockdown just to, um, uh, you know, to because they had a few cases People didn't like it, but they willingly, readily accepted it because they knew why they were doing it. And I think that has been an extraordinary feature in terms of what makes a good leader in these circumstances. So Angela Merkel is similar, like you're saying there, listening to the science and then talking to the people as adults and entrusting them with complex information and saying, look, you know, we're doing it. This is what this is why um, you know, these are the judgments we have to make and these are the, the various factors that we're balancing up. And I think that's been an extraordinary feature of good leadership. And we happen to have seen it in female leaders. Kathy, if I could just echo that and say that, you know, we have failed our children in terms of what has happened with the school closures twice. And it affects all children. And so, you know, the economic potential and the mental health of all children is affected by these closures. But for vulnerable children and children with special needs, some of the skills they have lost, they won't get back. And so I really think that if we had more women at the decision making table, instead of, you know, giving in to some of the lobby group activity, pushing for early opening of, you know, of, of restaurants and of like, we would have actually had the focus on the social well-being of our society in the long term and minding our kids. You know, they are the future. And we have a huge challenge next in terms of addressing climate change with a social justice lens and that our children have paid such a high price because our focus should have been on how can we ensure we keep community transmission low enough that the schools can stay open so our children can keep learning and can stay well and developing play and interacting with their peers is so important. I have two small kids and I see it in them how now they are afraid of other people outside of our bubble. They are afraid of touch. They are afraid of play. They are afraid of COVID. And, you know, in, in Temple Street, we have seen a surge in you know, severe mental health presentations to our emergency departments. My colleague, Elizabeth Barrett, who's a fantastic liaison psychiatrist, doing a lot of work on this. Uh, so it's having a huge impact. And that is a policy failure because they were not prioritised. And I do, th I can't prove it, but I do think if we had more women at the decision-making table, decisions that disproportionately affect women and children could have and would be better. Okay. Holly, in terms of what other countries have done, because I'm, I'm trying to keep this at a, at a broader level in terms of how women have succeeded, because there are there, 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 there are a low percentage of world leaders, unfortunately, which we know all too well, but they have been spectacularly successful in many cases. A, a chart I saw yesterday, which dates from, I think, as far back as December 31st, unfortunately, but nonetheless, I, I think the top, the top seven countries uh, with lowest mortality rates were led by women, Iceland, Finland, Norway. Holly, were they able to keep their schools open? Was there a, an absolute focus on child-centred planning, 
do you know what happened there? How did that woman-led, child-centred planning go and still produce those low mortality figures? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, with women leaders, there was more consideration for things like that. And I think, like, you can't endeavour to govern a society that promotes equality if it doesn't exist, for example, with your own party. So I think even this example of, like, imagine if Mary Lou were the Taoiseach, kind of course, it's not about one individual. And if I think you touched on all of the relevant points there. But for example, you know, it's, she's, she's a female leader of a party. There are far more women in her party than there are in the, the parties that are in government. And perhaps that's very much linked to the fact that it's female-led. So, yes, I didn't necessarily agree with a lot of the, the things that Mary Lou was pushing for throughout the pandemic. But you can imagine that her cabinet would have had more women sitting at it. And I think that's, you know, that's probably no coincidence across society, the world when we look at the female leaders, probably have more women in their cabinet too. And that that has a huge impact across every single department and the decisions made, um, you know, because that, that, that's what's happening. It's, you know, it's not just one person making the decisions as well. It's those discussions that ha happen around those decision making tables. And like, you know, you could perhaps have a female leader, but if the rest of the room um, isn't, then, you know, that could skew it to, to quite a big degree. And I think this is the really important thing that we need to address. And, you know, other countries have done very well in terms of increasing uh, female participation in their politics and therefore their decision making. And Ireland really hasn't. And, you know, I think that's where we would have seen a massive difference if, for example, Mary Lou was the leader, that there would have been so many warm, more women involved across the board. And that's what's so important. Whereas like, and I don't mean to make everything about politics, just as a politician on the call, but like... No, it's the, important. The problem in the, in this situation is... You know, it's not that, you know, women just aren't as good at politics as men. I mean, we know that isn't the reality. It's that we expect women to defy the odds when they're completely stacked up against them. Like as an example, and Gabrielle, you mentioned how far down we are in the list in terms of female participation in politics. I am the single only female TD for all of Cork City and County. We have 18 TDs in Cork. In addition to that, like another way of looking at that is there is six times more Michaels representing Cork than there is women. That is you know, absolutely scandalous. And like, just, you know, what we have is to try and address this. Where the, So they introduced a gender quota for how many women we have on the ticket in the lead up to a general election. And this, you know, this is the worst thing I ever came to realise when I was actually involved in this general election to see, for example, um, and I don't mean to be pointing at parties, but there was a Fine Gael candidate that said on the front page of a newspaper that essentially... I am the chosen candidate who's going to get elected in my constituency. And now we're looking at these two other candidates to sweep up votes in the other parts of the constituency because they tick the gender and the geography boxes. So that is not a real or meaningful attempt to get women elected. That is a real and meaningful attempt to meet your gender quota of women on tickets. So it's not just, I say, the biggest parties are the biggest barrier to female participation. That's not actually entirely true. It is you know, to a certain extent, it is the oldest parties because I think, you know, they're around since the foundation of the state, like so many things that are around that long, they're kind of institutionalised and often a boys club and women aren't as included or welcome in those spaces. That is the reality because, you know, it's not just Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, for example, the Labour Party don't have a single female TD and they're also a very old party. But the biggest barrier is that the biggest parties are consistently in power and they don't have 
enough women. That is the problem. I remember reading before Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have collectively spent 100,000 on trying to engage women. Like, what? What was? What did that money go on? How has it not worked? And I go back to the point that I made in the beginning is that I don't think you can endeavour to govern a society that promotes equality if it doesn't exist within your own party. And what we have had now for so long is governments who are kind of dragged along by a society that's ahead of them in terms of progressiveness and promoting equality, because the rest of society does have a gender balance. There's, you know, 51% of that population are female. And then they have to lead this change and drag the government along with them. And I just really instinctually feel like if we had better representation in politics, if we had more women at those decision-making tables and across all of society, people with disabilities, the list goes on, obviously, then government might finally lead that change that we all want to see in the rest of society. And I think it's just high time we had a taste of that, of more women involved at every single level in every single decision. Holly, I was so shocked to learn that um, Helen McEntee, in order to take um, maternity leave, would need to normally resign her ministerial position. I was I couldn't believe my own ears when I when I heard that, you know, that this is this is still the situation. Yeah, it was actually one of the first things I raised when I got into Leinster House was the fact that there is no maternity provisions for councillor senators or TDs. And I've been working with the Bills Office since my first month here and trying to legislate for that. Unfortunately, in the context of a pandemic, to allow senators and TDs um, to make proper provisions for maternity, you know, we have to change the constitution. So we need to have a referendum, not ideal in a pandemic, but you know, at least uh, oftentimes a starting point for your career in politics on the council, we can amend the Local Government Act to allow at least for maternity leave. Because important to note this, like in local government, you have to get a sixer, same as a TD, if you're if you're having a baby or adopting. I mean, that's just insulting. But interestingly, like when I was on the council, um, uh, unfortunately, I lost a, f- a family member who was abroad. So I had to travel just to do, you know, deal with arrangements and all of those things. And I'd just gotten elected and I was gone for a few weeks because it was in Cambodia. And the council like sent me this email saying, so sorry for your loss. You know, you'll be marked absent, but under a mitigating circumstance, so your wages won't be docked. And I was like, oh, so they're <laughs> not to be ungrateful that they made that provision for me, but there is a provision for something that men have encountered before whereby your wages don't get docked and you don't have to produce a six cert. However, there isn't for something that 50, you know, that, that women experience because there has never been enough women there. Um, so it's just, you know. Just show how the institution is designed around that patriarchal assumption that it will be men who will be representing and if they were ch- are children involved, that they will be minded at home. And it does come back to, you know, in society now, we talk about children and raising children as being about parents and about supporting parents. But yet at the same time, and I sort of struggled with this as a feminist, we know that the work of care predominantly falls to women, whether it is elderly parents or uh, or disabled family members or children. And so if women don't actually take it on, it's women who disproportionately suffer. Um, but I'll be a bit contentious now and I'll say that not only do we need to have, you know, paid maternity leave built in for TDs and for councillors and for senators, we really should have equal paid leave for both sexes, because in reality, we know that, you know, when women like Holly go back to the polls, you will have men who will be like, well, what is she going to take maternity leave now? Should we be voting for her? Will she be taking time off? 
we need that question mark that is over Holly, that's over Anne Rabbit, that's over every woman in politics. We need it to be over all the men as well. So if we're, if we're moving forward society-wise, we should be talking about a year's paid leave for parents and parents to decide how they're going to use that leave. Now, breastfeeding is another thing I feel very passionate about because I feel that it's, a, it's like a, a women's feminist issue, that if it was a man's issue, enough research would be done into putting in the supports to enable women to do what they want. So I think, you know, but again, it comes back. We as a society are ahead of where our politicians are and the institutions are so patriarchal and misogynistic in how they're designed that that systemic inequality thrives. And Aoife mentioned Margaret Thatcher, and she's a really good example. If you have only one woman in a patriarchal institution at the top of it, in order for her to survive at that institution and to succeed, she will reinforce the norms of the institution. And Margaret Thatcher you know, did nothing for working women and for their standard of living and for their healthcare. Actually, you know, she was patriarchal and misogynist in how she actually behaved. So the token woman, and I'm often asked to be the token woman, it's very hard to impact change if you're the only, if you're the only woman, the only traveler, the only black person at the table. Too easily that becomes a tick box in the way the gender quota quickly became a tick box. Sure, we'll run a few women. We don't really, sure, they're not runners. We're not going to really support them. We're not going to put money behind them, but they will tick the box as that we tried. And then the man we plan to do the job is going to do it. Like, I hope people listening to this feel furious because we should all be furious, but we can't let that fury subside after the podcast is over and after people have had the cup of tea. We have to then turn around and say, how are we going to fix the system? So that, and I know Holly was saying, you know, I don't want to make this all about politics, Politics really matters, especially when you're in a crisis. Like for me, as a consultant working in the healthcare system, the political decisions matter and they impact my ability to do my job. And coming back to public health again, and it sounds like I'm on a bandwagon about it, and I really am. I do think if we had women involved in decision making at the start, they would have looked at public health and said, hold on, we've no public health consultants. We've such a low number of specialists. Let's do a recruitment drive. Sort that contract issue, make them consultants. Gabrielle, if nothing else comes out of this but that, I think it's, I really want to reiterate that we need to know more about what public health doctors do. And we need to know why it's so important that they become consultants and why they should be uh, given the same respect as the neurologist in Bowman or the, the, the cardiac person in the matter or whatever. Because they really are the people, Cathy, with the training around how you design health systems to be equitable, to be cost effective. It would actually save the country money to have more public health specialists because it would reduce waste. If you look at healthcare around the world, 10 to 50 percent of the budget actually ends up being wasted because of duplication and other issues. But the more public health consultants you have involved in planning with people like me, with the subspecialty clinical expertise, how to deliver services, the better and the more equitable services are. And like, I'm not a public health doctor, so I don't yes. have a vested interest in them. Well, you're making a very good argument for them and one that I haven't heard. Well, I worked for Mike Ryan when I was um, a medical student for three months in WHO in the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. So that was a wonderful three months. And he's an incredible person. And I'm, I'm very proud to, to know him and to have worked for him. But so I've seen firsthand you know, the impact that public health has when it's resourced and the impact it has when it's not. Gabrielle, would it be fair to say that public health is uh, focused on prevention so that when when they're successful, when they're successful, there's nothing to see. 
So this is kind of the the paradox of being a really good public health doctor. It's like, well, nothing happened. It's like, exactly. I did my job well. Nothing happened. Like being a parent, you become redundant if you do it well. Holly, you were coming in there. I was going to say, in relation to what you were talking about, about both men and women taking that leave. And I think, you know, the Gaelic football ad on TV at the moment where the women are playing the match uphill. I think that really does a job. It shows it can it makes us visualize what it is like for women, though, and to imagine in it to put ourselves in their football boots that you're constantly up against it. Um, and to level that playing field is what we can then visualize. It does a job of helping us to visualize the reality. Holly, can I just ask you while you're there and, and you really are a terrific spokesperson and all of this? Um, I remember interviewing, not dropping names here or anything, but I think it was the King of Sweden or Norway. I don't know, it was one of them. And he told me very proudly that, and this is at least 15 years ago, he told me very proudly that this was the deal with, with, uh, with uh, uh, leave for baby leave, basically. That there was uh, so much time available, but the parents had to split it equally. And that to me made perfect, perfect sense. At the time, I was looking to see how many men might avail of two weeks unpaid leave it was handed to them and it looked like I did a little straw poll and very few men said they would because they felt it would reflect badly on their on their um on their ambition so hasn't this been proposed and is there any sign of it happening this this split leave it's exactly what I was going to talk about so because uh, Gabrielle said oh, it's almost contentious you know to maybe talk about um men taking yeah. the time off as well or whatever. that's what I'm saying to actually realistically level that playing field that is the only way it will be effective is that if you're if you vote for this man or you vote for this woman, they're both going to take off as much time, you know, if they have a baby. Because I can't tell you how many male TDs I know who've had children since the doll has formed. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't hear about her. Helen McEntee's all over the newspapers. And, you know, perhaps people speculate that it will affect her re-election. So the only way to make it equal is that if men, of course, take the exact same amount of time off, you run the risk with whoever you vote for that they're going to take that time off if they start a family or grow one. And so I spoke to the Bills office about this. This was one of my main aims. And I was thinking the only way this is fair is if everybody has to take this leave. This is the only way that we can do it. But there's a problem in that you have a right to earn a living. So that's in our constitution. We can't force people to take this leave. However, countries that have done it, and Cathy, you refer to Sweden there, I'm not too sure about that, but Iceland is a country that has done that. You know, all of the women just went on strike years and years ago to get equality and they got it. But um, it is just socially unacceptable, almost, in Iceland for men to not take the same amount of leave. So across the parliament in Iceland, they all do it because it would affect their vote negatively if they didn't because they're not you know taking that time with their family with their new children and, and to you know with their partner um so I guess it's like a move towards that but to normalize it like a lot of things instead of all of these men when it comes around to International Women's Day putting up a picture of them with their mom and their sisters saying that they love powerful women it's about doing that taking that time to to level the playing field put it, allowing women to go into those other positions instead of putting themselves in there we need actually, you know, a, a cooperation across society for this to happen. I should have mentioned earlier that this cause has been taken up big time by, by certain groups of women, and in particular, in your case, by COVID Women's Voices. Um, tell me about that and where you think it's got you. So really, COVID Women's Voices came about where a group of us, you know, came together and said, decisions that are disproportionately affecting women and children 
being made by men are not as good as the decisions that would be made if our voices were at the table. And so we could, you know, the issues around, especially healthcare workers, the, you know, not having childcare support when the schools closed really amp- um, impacted on our services in healthcare. So we really wanted to highlight women specific issues and the disproportionate impact of COVID. And what we're hoping is that the learning from this going forward will be that women will be represented by women at the decision making table so that those decisions can be better. And it does start with equal representation in the media, which is mandated, which is tracked, which is measured. And it also comes to equal representation in the doll so that the people making our laws, making our policies are more representative of our society. And that includes not just women, but all groups that are minoritized, travelers, black people, people with disabilities. And that's really what we're trying to shine a light on, to put pressure on those policies to be representative of all of us. That is mighty ambitious, Gabrielle, and I hope we'll all be very, very lucky. In some ways, maybe COVID-19 for all its tragedy and 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 annoyance and loneliness and awfulness. Maybe there is a silver lining to it all in that maybe when the tide went out, it left a lot of the, the naked shamefulness of, of parts of our society exposed. But before you go, Gabrielle, I'm going to ask the three of you really, if you think, and I can kind of know the answer to this, but anyway, I'm going to ask you, if women had been in the leadership in the past year, would it have made a difference? Oh, for sure. Undoubtedly. Like the research tells us that women, po- you know, women focus on preventative measures. They focus on societal well-being. So the decisions that they would make, make a difference. And so the public health response would have been stronger, would have been supported, would have been bolstered, and we would have reaped the benefits of that. But there is still time for us to improve how we respond for the rest of the pandemic and to prepare ourselves for the ones that will come, because we will continue to have pandemics until we sort out climate change. So we have a lot more work to do. And if we learn from this and if we change, and I really hope we will, and I do believe that we will. So there's an opportunity for us now to learn and do better. That's very positive. Aoife, what would you say if I asked you, would women have made a difference in the past year? Well, the evidence is that they would have and that they have um, around the world. And um, I think uh, it's because by including more voices, you're also listening better. This is a complex problem. There was a lot to be uh, a lot of different factors that needed to be considered and the, the structures and the political systems that included women did that better. And they reacted better. They protected their populations better and their economies better and all of the other things that uh, that um, matter to people. Holly, would things have been better in the past year if women had been in the leadership, had been directing a lot of the operations? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has certainly highlighted and exasperated inequalities in our society. And COVID women's voices have done an amazing job of highlighting how that has affected women. And of course, our society would be better if women were uh, represented at those decision-making tables. Um, It's very clear that they weren't enough. And so, yes, 100%, it would have been better. 100%. (laughs) Gabriella Difa, I'm sure you'd say 100% as well, would you? I think when representation is representative, we make better decisions. Yeah, yeah. No, I've no doubt. I think um, excluding women is a symptom. It's a, sim- a symptom of a bigger problem, which is really not listening and not including um, various voices and not really taking in all the evidence and all of the different perspectives. And without that, uh, the decisions aren't 
going to be sound and they're not, uh, you, you get lucky sometimes, but in the long run, uh, the decisions are not going to be the best decisions. Lord, so much of it is about the listening, isn't it? Listening, listening, listening. Um, thank you so much, Holly, Gabrielle, Aoife. Thank you for joining us today. That was pretty lively and pretty enlightening. And that's it for today. Thanks to all our guests, Holly Cairns, Gabrielle Colleran, and Aoife McLeisett, and Roisin Ingle. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, Jennifer Ryan, and Suzanne Brennan, with JJ Varen on sound. Email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com, or find us on our social channels at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.